No major foo bars this week so far. Nope. Nope. There's still time. <laughs> still, still time for something for the outtake at the beginning. <laughs> Hello and welcome to episode 22 of The Film File, the film podcast for isolated geeks by isolated film geeks. And I'm Lee Ford, and ever, as always, I'm joined by... Andy Beacon. How are you doing, Andy? How's it been? Yeah, it's uh, we're a bit late on this podcast because, um, I mean, I, this is not, not something I've been keeping a secret, but I've struggled. It's totally understandable. I distanced myself from Twitter last weekend. I distanced myself from pretty much everything and just shut down for a few days. Um, I'm recharging now. I'm getting back on it. Uh, those who have been keeping an eye on my activities on Twitter will have seen that I've started, started communicating a bit more. And also I posted out a little video update as well. But yeah, I'm getting there. And it's it's just this situation that we're living in at the moment, this world that we live in. We were just talking about this before before we started recording. Uh, and there are no ground rules at the moment. There are no uh, uh, guidelines that you can follow for how you look after yourself and, and how you deal with this situation. It's it's a unique situation, uh, currently a unique situation. I, I felt the same way a couple of weeks back. I sort of hit my low. The uncertainty of what's going to happen, I think, is is a major yeah. one. Um, I'm now I'm bored now. I went back and started going back to the gym. I'm, I've been self isolating. Kickboxing is the most bizarre thing you'll ever get into, <laughs> but it, it it was done. So I mean, my gym thankfully have devised a way that you can go and train. But literally, it's it's there's one instructor and you're the only person in, in the in the group, and there is the social distancing is is absolutely absolutely paramount but it was enough of a nice push just to get me to think about something else and yeah. to get back into some sort of flow because i've said on previous previous pods that i don't think i will be back into into a flow until until next year so i i totally get it andy i think i think i think you should be allowed to feel like this because well, it, i've seen it bandied around a lot over the past few weeks like the, the comment it's it's okay to not be okay I, I totally agree. This is the this is a situation in the world that we're all starting to realise that because this isn't a new thing. That's that's saying it's okay to not be okay, but people haven't really registered it or had it really reflect on their life. But now everyone's getting a moment where the that they're realising actually, you know, I don't feel good about this, and so everyone's starting to work out that mental health issues are affecting everyone and it can affect you if you've never been affected any time in your life you could suddenly be hit with it and a time like this is a time which is making a lot of people suddenly realize the importance of just turning around and letting people know when you're not okay that's what i did as soon as i hit this block i let people know i posted out on social media to just say look i'm not in a good place i'm not going to be taking part in anything this weekend because i do a movie talk chat on the sundays i didn't take part in that last sunday and all the guys from the mtos gang we're all like very understandable it's like oh no i hope you get you you take some time guy you get on with it everyone understands now what it's like to hit that wall yeah i think i think you're right i think there's that realization that it doesn't take an awful lot from having a rosy outlook on life to suddenly feeling bombarded by things that you've, you've never felt or you've never admitted to feeling I, i'm quite the opposite of you it took me a long time to sort of come to terms with that's how i was feeling interestingly to, to take it back onto a film note i did read about chris evans uh how he bonded with chris hemsworth because they they had huge anxiety issues when they took over 
their roles in Marvel. And because they yeah. were both pretty new up and coming actors at the time, they, they bonded over this, this, this fact that they, they had anxiety. It can happen to anyone, whether you are um, in the situation as we are just kind of hanging in normal guys to guys who are leading the Marvel universe in two, <laughs> of, the, two of the greatest films ever made. But you know, this is what this thing is about. It's, it's a great leveler. And, um, I've talked to people who are very, very wealthy and, and done remarkably well in their life, going through the same anxieties about the future as, as you and I have uh, in a way that, that surprised me. But as I said, it is a great leveler. But moving on, of course, something else that's taken up a lot of your time this week, and uh, I hope it's not been part of your anxiety, is the <laughs> fact that the Snyder Cut is now ready to be released. We touched on this on the last episode because we recorded the last episode the day before the expected announcement. It was that Zack Snyder's Justice League is getting a HBO treatment for the HBO Max channel. And I did a little video piece on the day of it as an instant response. And, you know, I am, I am pleased for the positive campaigners who wanted this release. I am pleased that it's seeing the light of day. I see a butt satelliting around this this conversation. We've been told, and yeah, I mentioned that I've been, I got lambasted and I got actual abuse levied my way whenever I said it doesn't exist as a full cut. It's a work print. And people telling me I'm stupid, I don't know what I'm talking about. I got direct messages in my old Twitter account. The reason why I got rid of one of my old Twitter accounts, because I've now just focused on the film file one. I had a personal account, but that was getting so toxic with the direct messages I was getting, I closed it. And really? all because I dared to comment that it wasn't a real cut and I know what I'm talking about and working in the industry. Well, guess what? Turns out I was right. It's not a cut because Warner, Warner Media's chairman, Bob Greenblatt, has actually stated that it's not as easy as going into the revolt and there's a Snyder cut sitting there to put out. It doesn't exist. Zach is actually building it and it's a, it's complex. And from that, he said that it's going to cost at least $30 million more dollars. Uh, the quote was along the lines of at least $30 million plus. Um, I'll just say I wish it was just $30 million and stop there. Nailed it on the head. So, I mean, the, the positives. Let's look at the positives first. We aren't going to get uh, a Zack Snyder cut. That's down to Zack Snyder being persistent and keeping and the, manipulating and manipulative um, and keeping keeping the flame going to 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 push his vision of a of a film which in all honesty wasn't a particularly great film the pressure's on now is it going to be a better film the the, ma- the mash that was released was a terrible film you could tell it was two different directors battling for some kind of vision uh, a director who was added at the last minute Joss Whedon given a short period of time to cobble things together and I don't blame him one bit for what the end result was because he was told to do a job and he'd already seen what happened to the last guy who didn't do the job so he knew that he would have just been like well you can get out as well we'll get someone else to edit it and finish it uh, yeah he, he just delivered what he could in the short space of time for a studio that had a, a very distinctive vision I always said that you know I'd be interested to see the actual rough cut that Snyder had shown to Warner executives back then that made them go whoa get out and I'd be happy to see it in the format it was in. Unfinished effects work, et cetera, et cetera. Because I've seen those kind of cuts, I understand them. But I knew that they would never release that because the fan base who had been clamoring for it would try to say that they've deliberately sabotaged it to make Snyder look bad. So now Snyder's getting a chance to finish his vision, even though he's been posting pictures of cans over the past year to say, look, it's finished. It's in. It, the cut's there. It does exist. It didn't, mate. You were just fanning the flames. Positives, they will get to see that vision. 
will it be the original vision? Not, I'm not convinced on this because he's now got a year to finish off the film with hindsight of listening to all the people saying what they didn't like in the version that was released and removing those elements and putting other things in that people had said, oh, wouldn't it have been good to have had this and had that? So we're not going to get his original vision as far as I can see. We will get a vision. I'm going to point out that as far as we know right now, none of the original cast are returning for any reshoots at this stage. There's very little confirmed news out there, if any. It's speculation as to whether it's going to be a one long four and a half hour film or whether it's going to be cut up into six part episodic chunks. Anything that you've read anywhere on like, oh, it's definitely a TV series. Nothing's confirmed. Nothing official has come out. Even the the cost that they're putting towards it, the only official thing is what we've already said. I wish it was just 30 million and stop there. That's all. That the, it's just a ballpark figure. How would you like to see it? How would you like to see this film released? Would you like to see it as released as a film? Would you like to see it broken up as a some sort of episodic miniseries? What would what would be your preference? I think I think as a film would be the that was what it was intended to be. Make it as a film because to break something up into an episodic chunks means you then have to re-edit it to make it have that episodic nature. So it's no longer even close to the vision that we originally was. A TV series is a completely different narrative structure to a film. So if it is split into six, it's not going to have any relevance to what it was originally supposed to be. So it should be released as a one-off cut. I'm pretty sure that's what we will get, and, and I, I agree with you. I don't think it's it'll go the the rumour that's, uh, that's going around about Once Upon a Time in Hollywood being released as a as a episodic uh, miniseries for Netflix. I can't see it going that route. I don't think it it would work. I'm interested to see it. I wasn't a big fan of, of Justice League. I've not been a big fan of um, Snyder's DCEU product anyway. You took the words right out of my mouth. I've always been curious about what his intentions were with this. And yeah, I, I'm always curious when like a cut gets changed. And on that note, there's other films where the cut was changed behind the director's back or the director was kicked off a year before it got released, that, yes, it would be interesting to see them, but let's not pursue them. Sometimes they work because you you are retaining the vision that the director had in mind. There have been other occasions where there have been alternate versions and you feel that it was it was meddling for, for meddling's sake. Yeah. Sometimes bringing some scenes back in, just slow the pace down. The- My... My favourite one for bringing that one up is um, Aliens Special Edition. Yes. The extra scenes added back in, for me, diminish the overall impact of the film. The gun turrets corridor scene, it just unnecessarily breaks the tension. And it, it weakens what was already a great film. We didn't need that special edition. And it's referred to as the special edition because it wasn't actually a Cameron cut. It was made without him and then he went back to it to polish it up at a later date. And one of the films that did work, like uh, by going back and replaying it, was of course Blade Runner, where we got yes. to see a vision of the film that was as close to what the director wanted at the time. Uh, he got the opportunity to go back and reshoot some sequences, got the opportunity to touch up some of the effects work, which would date a little bit. And that, to me, the director's cut or whatever it's called, there's, there's been so many, is the vision of. Uh, of Ridley Scott, and that's the the film that he wanted to make. And and the key thing is, it, it, this what this didn't come about as a result of a campaign. It wasn't a fans' campaign to restore this cut. This was Ridley Scott looking at his own film, going, 
if I could raise the money to do this, I'd really love to touch this up. I'd really love to do that. I'm managing to get the money to do this thing. It was a director's vision and a director chasing his own vision. It didn't need fans telling them. And what we're seeing at the moment is exactly what I speculated we would see. We have uh, the Suicide Squad released the eye cut is now trending. All the ones who were campaigning for Zack Snyder's Justice League are now campaigning for a new cut of Suicide Squad, which David Ayer is doing a Zack Snyder and stoking those flames. He is releasing little images, little sketches. Oh, this is what my vision was. This is what my vision was. Because he's seen that it works. So why shouldn't he? At the same time, you've got the flip side where you've got directors such as Josh Trank, like I've mentioned, has had to deny that he'd, he'd ever go back to Fantastic Four. He's had to turn around and go, look, I know you guys think that there's a cut out there. I'm having non- nothing to do with it. Stop harassing me. Simon Kinberg, who gave us that rather terrible Dark Phoenix film. <laughs> There's a campaign started to bring out a Kimberg cut of Dark Phoenix, which he's actually had to turn around and say, yeah, that was the version that was released at the cinemas. That was my film. <laughs> so they're basically turning around to a director saying, we're supporting your vision by telling you your vision was garbage. And there's even a petition going around that people are signing to get a four-hour cut of Star Wars Revenge of the Sith. Can I just break in there? Because <laughs> I seem to remember that Star Wars Revenge of the Sith was directed by one George Lucas. who produced- All those prequels were funded, produced, and directed and written by George Lucas. So the versions that we got on the big screen were George Lucas's cuts. Yet some people, because they didn't like the film, want to try to say that Lucas had it edited behind his back. He edited it as well. (laughs) (laughs) Will this madness ever end, I tell you? This is the world that we live in, that now, whenever you go to watch a film and you go, God, that film was bad, you just sit in your basement and start a campaign to get a better version of the film, regardless of whose cut we actually saw. So I'm I'm, I'm going to campaign for the Scorsese cut of The Irishman. (laughs) We should be about an hour shorter. There, Easily. that'll show them. <laughs> but is it cinema? <laughs> so, moving on swiftly, it does though it does does beg the question that we should ask on on our Twitter account if there could be a director's cut of a film that doesn't exist other than the ones we've mentioned. What would that would be? And we want we want genuine the genuine article, not going the four hour version of Re- Revenge of the Sith. So if, you, if you're interested, let us know if there is a director's cut that you would like to see. That's the world that we live in at the moment. And I'm sure we'll get news on what the actual cut's going to represent over the coming months as we start to, as the industry starts to spark back into life and all the effects work starts to get edited. And we'll, we'll get to see stuff. I know Zack Snyder's already posting out images and things. I'm not paying any attention to what he's posting out because we've already seen that he posted out stuff that didn't exist in the past. So I'll wait until we see some actual confirmations as to how much it's going to cost, et cetera, et cetera, before we report on it again. Okay, so we're going to quiet on the Snyder front. But Andy, as you have been housebound, as have we all, uh, you've been scouring the World Wide Web to find out any news. Andy, bring us the news. Well, on related news to what we've we've just been talking about, uh, Henry Cavill is in talks to return as Superman. Yeah, now I saw this and and thought it was uh, a very late April Fool's gag. <laughs> Isolation got to someone so long. Yeah, did somebody forget to post this on 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 the first of April? Interesting, because it was as far as we know, these these negotiations with Warner's had ended, and now there looks a return to him as playing Superman. However, not in 
a sequel to Man of Steel, which is probably what we would like to see more than anything else. Not in his own film and not leading it. So basically, he's going to be what Robert Downey Jr. became in the Marvel franchise after he did finished Iron Man 3. So just a guest appearance that ties a universe yeah. that we'd said doesn't exist anymore. He, he becomes the linchpin on which the rest of them hang. And in a way, I can, I can kind of appreciate that. I'm not with you on this one, Andy. I'm not feeling that at all. You tell me your, your reason why you think it's a, a, a better idea. With the DC universe, I think that there's a wealth of characters out there that could be given their own film above your Batmans and your Supermans. And the problem with Superman in a lot of things is that he's far too powerful. And I'm, I'm talking as a huge Superman fan here. He's far too powerful. So if you have him as the linchpin that is just there in the background and like dips in and dips out of other things, he doesn't have to dominate and it allows the others to grow. I mean, you can speculate at the moment as to whose films he's going to pop up in. Let's be honest, Black Adam, he's definitely got, they definitely want this because they want him up against Black Adam. Well, that would make sense. And they'll want him buddying with Shazam at some point. Those would sort of make sense because they've, they've thread that through in the, in the Shazam movie. And whilst I would love to see a Man of Steel 2 with a, a more better defined Superman than what we had in Man of Steel, I'm not that bothered with this DC Extended Universe version of the character to feel that it's necessary. We're going to get a TV series, which is going to do a Superman. I'm fine with that. I'm fine with it having a TV series and let Superman just drift in and out of other people's films. I like Cavill. I think he's a great actor. I think he was well cast. He just wasn't the right Superman for me. I've got, I've got to agree with that. And that's why I, th I think that using him as just like a, he's the mythical, perfect superhero linchpin for them to hang everyone else's aspiration to be heroes around. Now, this, my my take on this is he's, he's, he's likely not to turn up in Wonder Woman 1984 because that's has somewhat of an imminent release. Uh, Suicide Squad 2, can't see it personally. Yeah. I agree no. with Black Adam. He's not going to fit into the tone of Matt Reeves as uh, the Batman, which then suddenly throws out of the window the idea of a shared universe. Apart from about 40 minutes of Man of Steel. I thought it was a very poor film. So I would like him if he is going to come back. And I don't see a reason for him to exist otherwise. Okay, Black Adam. But Black Adam, as we know, is a Shazam uh, villain. Why not just have Black Adam appear in Shazam? Doesn't make any sense to me. I would prefer to see a Man of Steel sequel that captures the essence of a modern Superman. You know my love for Superman the movie and for Christopher Reeve. Yeah. There could be a contender for Superman with Henry Cavill that is an epic, grandiose adventure that doesn't have to demonstrate that Superman has this dark side and it could be the hero of this generation, the Superman film that, that, we, that we've always wanted. I would much prefer to see Man of Steel 2 that tells it a brand new story that explores what it's like to be Superman. Moving on. Remember when we reported a while back on rumours of a sequel to Labyrinth? We are always, if nothing, at the forefront of any major movie news. And I remember at the time of that announcement, everyone online was so against the making a sequel to Labyrinth. How dare you touch on my childhood? It's going to destroy it, blah, blah, blah. Well, it seems like the studio worked out how to soften the blow a bit and get people on board. Which is... Remember when we announced that Scott Derrickson had been ditched from the Doctor Strange movie <laughs> and everyone online was was absolutely disgusted at this and like the backlash against the studio was like, how dare you get rid of Scott, Scott Derrickson, blah, 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 blah. 
Well, it turns out if you take two negatives, you get a positive because Scott Derrickson is going to be making a sequel to Labyrinth and everyone online loves the idea. <laughs> hey, happy fans for a change. Happy fans. Uh, of course, now they'll be wanting the Scott Derrickson cut of uh, Doctor Strange in the multiverse of... Yeah, even know. though it was never filmed, but... Yeah, they'll be I, wanting that cut. Uh, Maggie Levin, who it was responsible for Hulu's Into the Dark and My Valentine, is writing the script for a sequel to Labyrinth. Scott Derrickson going to be making it. And I, I, I like this idea. I mean, th- I have encountered a couple of people who are like, oh, I'm not sure because Labyrinth's one of my favourite films of all time. But Jumanji got a modern sequel and did quite a good job of it. As did Dark Crystal. Dark Crystal got a like great modern sequel. So it can be done. And it, you can even look at like the, the classic Wizard of Oz and how Return to Oz took a different story from a later point in that timeline and told a new tale. And that's what you can do with Labyrinth because it's, it's a fantastical world that you can use to tell a story within. The only drawback is that we can't get the Goblin King. Yes. And that's, and that's one thing I just hope they wouldn't think or dream of recasting uh, and come up with a new uh, a, a new protag- uh, antagonist for it. In the same way that the Oz films don't need the Wicked Witch of the West. Yeah. If you could make a load, and there's loads of Oz books, and each of them tells a different story with different characters coming into it and different bad guys, et cetera, et cetera. And the, the realm of Labyrinth could utilize that. Who has filled the void that's been left when the Goblin King was defeated? Yeah. What is that labyrinth world looking like now? I'm really interested in this, and I th- I think it's a, it's a cracking idea. And Derrickson, he's got a great vision. I'm interested to see what he can do with it. So I'm on board with this. And talking about continuations of uh, a new take on a story, you've got some Planet of the Apes news. Yeah, I mean, we spoke about uh, Wes Ball is going to be making a new Planet of the Apes film. And you have to realise it's only three years since that trilogy finished unless you're spider-man there's really no need for a reboot obviously there's been a lot of speculation as to is it going to be a direct sequel is it going to step on the toes is it a reboot is it going to like completely ignore everything and wes ball is completely aware of what people's concerns are and he's gone on record to like alleviate some concerns he loved that recent trilogy he thinks that they are a perfect trilogy and he doesn't want to step on their toes and in his to quote him i've got a statement by him Those last three movies are one of the greatest trilogies we have in modern movie history. They are just so well done. They honoured the original movies they sprang from, the Charlton Heston movies, but they grounded it in a modern sensibility and it just worked. Caesar is one of the great movie characters that we'll have throughout time. So what do you do to follow that up? At the same time, I wasn't interested in doing a a part four either. We want to do our own thing. We have a take. And when he says we, he's talking about him and Josh Friedman, who's um, working with the story for him. We have a way of staying in the universe that was created before us, but we're also opening ourselves up to being able to do some really cool new stuff. Again, I'm trying to be careful here. I'll say this for fans of the original three. Don't worry, you're in good hands. The original writers and producers that came up with Rise and Dawn, Rick Jaffa and Amanda Silver, they're also on board with this. That's great, isn't it? I mean, that's... That's what you want to hear when you've when you've just come out of a, a beloved trilogy, uh, and it was a very bold move, especially the last two movies went in a direction that wasn't necessarily big summer movie. Uh, they had a they were very downbeat. They were their own thing, and so I really like the fact that that the ball's going to be playing uh, in the sandpit but he's going to be bringing something new to it because it's a vast, again, a vast and exciting world that, that 
has now been laid out to us that does pay homage back to the 60s movies. Yeah. Strangely, not Tim Burton's movie, but we'll we'll move on. <laughs> and he's going to keep the look of it as well. There is speculation that because the, he doesn't want to tread on the toes and do a direct sequel, that maybe it's going to jump forwards a significant chunk in time when ape culture has become, has grown. That would be my starting point. That's where I would like to see it because I'd like to see the world that's now been set out and we know from the end of, uh, of, of the last film where it was going and, yeah. and therefore I'd like to see how that world's developed. And, and that's the great thing about Planet of the Apes. It's in the title, folks. It's the Planet of the Apes. So we've got some more sequel works in the works. It's sequel, sequel, sequels. Sonic the Hedgehog. Now Sonic managed to do that mythical double whammy that video game movies very rarely get. It got really good reviews and strong box office. So it was a no-brainer that there was going to be a sequel. But this is a film that started out where the fans were dead set against (laughs) it. There were petitions. Twitter had a meltdown, I believe, that one particular day. Twitter actually... Uh, threw itself into the sea. Yeah, and it didn't even need Donald Trump to shut it down in order to do it. Uh... And, you know, the, the trailer came out for Sonic. The, the fanboys went mad. The director apparently said he listened. I know you've got a different take on this. <laughs> we, we've we discussed that many times. And and uh, apparently they listened. They changed the look of, of Sonic. And it came out earlier this year, found an audience, relatively good reviews. And now there's a sequel in the works. Marvellous marketing by the Paramount on the last film. That's all I'm going to say on the subject. But <laughs> Jeff Fowler is returning to direct. Pat Casey and Josh Miller are returning on script duties because why change what worked? The film was fun. It was vibrant. And it was a great family treat film. No details on the story for the sequel are known. But we're, the anticipation is that we're going to see a move from Earth to the zones of the video game. And we'll see inclusions of other characters, which we were already teased with mid credit Sting on the first film with Tails the Fox coming in to find Sonic. I'm excited to see what they do with it. I love the Sonic character. I've, I've always been a big Sega fanboy. And I'm, I, I'm enamored by this world that they're building on screen. Good. Here's a couple of uh, TV hits that are currently working their way up a big one from scorsese you, know, you mentioned earlier the uh your ver- your vision of a director's cut for uh the irishman <laughs> apparently yeah. there's some scorsese news yeah uh, flowers of the killer moon which we've mentioned a few times on the news sections over the past few months we last mentioned saying that all the studios have turned it down because it was going to cost too much 225 million budget the studio is saying is it going to make that much at the box office? Because apparently Paramount was connected to it last, weren't they? Yeah, they're still connected. But Apple Studios have picked it up to fund and produce. So from what I'm hearing, while Paramount initially agreed to finance it, they they, they barked at the, uh, at the rising costs. The budget was going through the roof. Um, but from what I know, Paramount will still be releasing the film into cinemas. Yeah. Apple have got the creative standpoint on it for funding and putting the money behind it it will get a short cinema distribution they're not saying how short what time frame etc i'm suspecting something similar to irishman yeah that it it had that little short stint in selected theaters worldwide to get it on the awards radar and also to allow people to go and see it but then apple will use it on their channel so it will have a short window it won't be in every cinema because of that short window but 
it's getting made. Um, this is, they, I think this is the future of Scorsese films. It seems to be, doesn't it? Is it cinema? Well, it, it is and it isn't now. He has that choice. So that's Killers of the Flower Moon. It stars Robert De Niro and Leonardo DiCaprio. It yeah. adapts David Cran's non-fictional novel set in 1920s Oklahoma, revolves around the Osage Nation where the richest people per capita in the world after oil was discovered under their land. And then they were murdered one by one. Yeah. So an intriguing uh, story. Looking forward to it. I'm always a big fan of Scorsese. Always looking to uh, to see what he's going to do next. And uh, what a great cast. Yep. All the things that we've got with regards to TV work. The film Upgrade. Did you get a chance to see Upgrade? I didn't. I I mean, I've seen um, I've seen Lee Wannell's next uh, his last film which was invisible man which was fantastic i i didn't i'm a big fan of bloomhouse i I like what bloomhouse do i like the fact that they work on small budgets and do quite interesting work i know a lot of people i know who saw upgrade thought it was just a a, an old-fashioned throwback uh almost joel silveris type thriller yeah it's it's a great energetic thriller and it's everything that the venom movie should have been but wasn't it was like <laughs> it it was venom oh really in everything but name and it's a great film um but it's getting a tv series as well now oh that's good well we know sometimes offshoots from tv series as we're going to talk about when we get to your neat thing can work and then sometimes series like limitless come out yeah with, with something like upgrade the film is great as it's as it is but there's concepts in there that you think, oh, it'd be great if they could expand on there. And that this is why, like, when it get this something like this gets announced for a TV series, like, oh, actually, yeah, I can see where they can go with this. And this will be one that I'm going to keep my eye on for. Another one that I'm keeping my eye out for is uh, coming to Amazon, which is another adaptation of the Girl with the Dragon Tattoo series. This could be considered flogging a dead horse because. To some extent, this is a series that worked originally very, very well in in its uh, native tongue adaptation. Uh, I like the Fincher movie, even though I don't think it brought anything particularly different to the table. I I liked it as a a solid thriller with a great cast and a great look to it. There was a a sequel of sorts that came out a couple of years ago. Oh, the Claire Foy starring one. Yeah, which didn't Uh, set the box office. We we ignore that one. That That was a poor cash in. But she's an interesting character, uh, Elizabeth Salander. Um, people are interested in seeing her adventures and seeing what she does. So uh, I'd be interested to see where they go with the series. I think there's a possibility that it could work very, very well as a TV series. If I remember correctly, weren't the sequels, the original sequels made for TV in their native country? Yeah. The originals were like a, a two or three parters. So it is kind of finding its feet back on back in TV. I would love to see Fincher given a chance to yeah, continue that trilogy because what he brought to the screen was was a beautiful adaptation of the book. And I would lo- have loved to have seen him tackle the other two books in the series. But in the absence of that, you know, I'm not averse to seeing a, a, a series for Amazon, especially given some of the quality of some of the Amazon shows over the past few years that have really, like, you know, delivered really well on like every bit of vision so i'm on board with this and lastly on the news um somebody's going to put tom cruise in a rocket and shoot him into space that's what i've got as my headline <laughs> yeah doug lyman is uh, going to be directing a tom cruise in space film and that's as pretty much all the information that we've got on it it's a it's a space set movie with tom cruise go- actually going into space he's always wanted to go into space apparently yeah and uh his plans have been confirmed by nasa and elon musk spacex that they're going to be um, 
basically putting Tom Cruise into a rocket, shooting him into space and making a film. It's, it's no simpler than that, really. It just worries me. But <laughs> this, will be the la- this will be the last that we ever heard of Tom Cruise because he'll try to do one of his own stunts and just go disappearing off into the distance. <laughs> That's when we realised that gravity was just basically a, a foolproof plan. Uh, he's, he's teamed up with Doug Lyman again. They made Edge of Tomorrow, which was vastly underrated. Well, vastly underrated as far as box office, but critically found yeah. and definitely... Um, afterwards found an audience and I, I enjoyed the film they made American made, which was, was, was again, was just a neat little movie. And there's something about Tom Cruise. He's just enjoyable to watch in nearly everything that he does. He's enthusiastic about everything he does, which is what makes it so enjoyable. Even when he makes a stinker of a film like the mummy. Yes. Which you can almost forgive now. He absolutely enjoys making them. And we've got to, we'll see Tom Cruise again, I'm not sure of the date because who knows about dates anymore? Because as far as I'm concerned, this is Maybember uh, <laughs> with Top Gun Maverick, uh, the sequel to uh, Top Gun. And of course, he's he's doing back to back at the moment with Mission Impossible films with Chris McQuarrie. He's a very busy man. He is. And that's the news. If you're a fan of the pod and fan of uh, Andy and I, then please... Please, we implore you to subscribe, like us, like us on uh, iTunes. It boosts our ratings, helps us with our eternal quest to bring in a sponsor. Uh, if you want to reach out and chat to us, if you something we've said that you disagree with, or you just want to add some news in or just feel part of the show, you can reach us on Twitter via at Filmfile UK. If Twitter hasn't already been shut down by the time we're listening to this by some, I don't know, an executive order. <laughs> <laughs> so over the last couple of weeks, Andy has been trawling through a list of films that he has never seen and using lockdown as an opportunity to catch up. It's fallen on my shoulders to suggest those films. Uh, and last week we jumped out because we mentioned Michael Mann, uh, an opportunity for Andy to watch The Last of the Mohicans, directed by Michael Mann in 1992, set in 1757 during the French-Indian War. It was an adaptation of James Fenimore Cooper's 1826 novel. It starred Daniel Day-Lewis, Madeline Stowe, Jodie May, Russell Means. I think it's a fantastic film. I love it a lot. It's one of my favourite Michael Mann films. But Andy, this is all about you now. What did you think to Last of the Mohicans? I'm, I'm getting the feeling now with the past few weeks that this is uh, like each one of these, you introduce as one of your favourite films. I've got, I've got thousands of favourite films. If if I ever have to, and sometimes <laughs> I've, when I've done radio and they say, what's been your favourite film ever? And, you know, I've, I've, I can do like 20. But I really liked <laughs> Last of the Mohicans when it came out. I thought it was, I thought it was a great way of taking a subject matter and a style of storytelling and completely giving it a, a, that modernistic touch. Yes, I know people said it was like an MTV generation, but hasn't everything become an MTV generation now, except MTV? Well, I, w- I wouldn't say it was necessarily an MTV generation, but like. it, it does come over. It does come over a tad too melodramatic at times. And it has an almost daytime soap opera aesthetic at some point in the film that kind of diminished the film for me overall. Okay. Um, it, it's not a great film. It's not a bad film. It's not an average film. It's an above average film. It's not authentic to the period and events that it's set in. I was, I was completely aware of that about half an hour into it. I was like, yeah, it looks the part, but it's definitely not playing the part. And it didn't feel like a Michael Mann film to me. I agree with you there. It's got a, it's got a tremendous look. It's got a cr- tremendous style to it. 
um, directed by man. Cinematographer was Dante Spinelletti, who was his, who's worked with him who, who is, so many times. He's one of his go-to guys. I think uh, definitely when it introduces itself, it, it's you know the kind of film that you're, you're going to get from the from the get-go. It, it's yeah. very very stylized. It's a, it's a rip-roaring adventure. In, a, in an old-fashioned way. There was just something of uh, the aesthetic that I really, really liked about it when I first saw it. Uh, more so than what I remember the story. I just loved the aesthetic of it more than anything else. The strongest impression I got from the film was that Daniel Day-Lewis can certainly run in slow motion. With long hair. When, as someone who has long hair, running in <laughs> slow motion is a must. He looks great in the multiple slow motion running shots, but it got to the stage with the slow motion running shots that... I actually found myself starting to chuckle at any times that it started happening because it was happening too much. It's it's an interesting film set around interesting events. From what I understand, the book itself that it's adapted from is pretty much unreadable. Yeah, um, it's a it mess. Is. And you know, this was more an adaptation of the 1936 film adaptation, uh, which is very highly regarded. Yeah, it, it's a good film, but it it just has moments that just it kind of dates it as a 1990s film when it's when it's when it should be a period piece that is dated in the period it's set in and so it doesn't lose substance over time as a result of how it's been made you definitely know that this was made in the 90s and it suffers as a result of it but can you not say that about about the western you mean you look at you look at westerns from the 50s and 60s no matter how good they are they're, they're dated by the time period. And especially when you moved into, into 1970s Westerns, which became grittier, they are, they are about the era that, that they were made. They're not really about the West. They're about that specific time in history. The same with horror movies. No matter how great a horror movie is, it reflects yeah. the world that, that, that you're living in. So idealistically, they, they, they change and become dated. I, I agree with everything you said. It's funny, I've not seen it for an awful long time. I'm not even drawn to go back and watch it. I remember when it came out and saw it theatrically and I, I was just wowed by it. I thought that's the way to do what is, as you said, quite an unreadable book now, very yeah. dated book, and to give it an energy that's not worried about authenticity and it's not compromised by that uh, and, and has a, is a sweeping, big vista film with some big sweeping romantic ideas behind it. And that I, I really I really enjoyed about it. I think as a way of updating that particular story, I, I still remember the BBC version, which was shot, I think, in uh, uh, in, in Scotland, uh, doubling up for the, for the US. Uh, and, and it gave it that sense of, uh, it gave it a sense of style and grandeur that I think influenced other films and, and is very much about the time. And we would probably now get a, a, a gritty much more politically correct version of it. I can see that. One thing that stood out, and on reflection, this, you know, as a huge fan of Michael Mann, it was the absence of something that kind of made it not feel right to me. I missed the cityscapes. I missed the urban jungles that he sets his films in because he uses the environment around it as a character in itself in his films. And in this, the landscapes are delightful and the well-captured by uh, uh, Spinotti, absolutely beautiful visions of like mountains and forests, etc. But they're not a character, and so it doesn't become a part of the story. The environment is not part of the story in the same way that every other Michael Mann film, the environment it's set in, feels like a character within the story. And that I think 
as a fan of man going in to watch a Michael Mann film, that might be one of the things that kind of made me step back and go, oh, I'm not connected with this as much. Which for me is the exact opposite, to be honest, because I thought he did bring that aesthetic of of the environment into it. And that's, for me, one of the reasons that it felt it felt very, very sweeping in the way that, that Michael Mann does it. I totally agree that he does include architecture as part of that. And I think the fact that it wasn't about architecture, it was about the trees and the forests, that added that element into it that, that I've seen in Michael Mann. But, you know, we can't always like the same things. I'm glad you enjoyed it. Um, yeah. I, as I said, interestingly, I've not seen it now for... When did it come out? 1992. So a good long years. I, I, I even had it on DVD, and I don't think I went back to it. I watched it again. It's one I might consider going back to at some point just to reevaluate because there's elements that I liked, but there's elements that didn't quite gel with me because my expectations going in were completely different to what was delivered. So it's one that I'd like to give another chance at some point down the line. So for this week, we've gone through the list. Last week, I had to sort of flip a coin. Should it be Last of the Mohicans? Uh, we went with that. I'm going to give you another film that I like. I must find a film that I don't like, actually, at some point, <laughs> and let, let you watch that. Uh, but I'm going to give you Goodwill Hunting, the film that basically made Matt Damon to the big star that he is today, proved that uh, both he and Ben Affleck had a lot more going on than just other good-looking young actors. Interesting to see now, because of the impact it had to those two actors' careers, and, and especially the fact that they, they've written about it, how you can reevaluate how important that film was to their careers. So Goodwill Hunting is your film. And I'm surprised you've never seen it, but it's your film to watch before <laughs> that, the next episode. That's a common theme with all this I'm list of films. I'm starting to get that. And I think if we do a line of T-shirts, that's what it should say. Right. I'll get that watched for the next episode. Fantastic. As you know, folks, we are all in some kind of isolation for how much longer it will continue and we can get back to the cinema and start reviewing stuff. Uh, who knows right now? It might be weeks, might be months. But in the meantime, so we can talk about something in depth. We've been doing deep dives. Uh, over the last couple of weeks, we've done Princess Bride. We did Superman the movie. This week, uh, our challenge was to do a deep dive into Flash Gordon. So, Flash Gordon, directed by Mike Hodges, produced by Dino De Laurentiis, uh, came out in 1980, starred uh, Sam J. Jones in the role of Flash Gordon, Melody Anderson. Dale Arden. Melody Anderson as Dale Arden, uh, a very young Timothy Dalton, a guy who used to be in Blue Peter, was in there as well, <laughs> written by, uh, you can't, everybody now just goes, it's that guy who used to be 
in, in Blue Peter. And of course, you can't <laughs> talk about Flash Gordon without mentioning Brian Blessed. And to some extent, the Gordon's Alive line, more people remember that than they actually remember the film. Gordon's Alive! Everyone does the impression. I'm not going to, as you've <laughs> just done it. So, as I said... The thing is, even when Brian Blessed does it, he does it in different ways every time he does it. And it's, it's, that's the iconography When it's actually the done in the film, it is very much a, Gordon's Alive! Like a query. It's like, oh my God, he's still alive. But whenever he's asked to do it in like events and public speakings, he bellows it. It's like, Gordon's alive! So this kind of came out in the wake of Star Wars when every studio was looking for uh, a, a big budget science fiction film to throw at the screen. Yeah, I mean, Dino De Laurentiis had held, already held the rights to this well before Star Wars came out because uh, George Lucas apparently wanted to make Flash Gordon. Interesting enough, in that's true. In the 70s. And uh, Dino was having none of it. He didn't want this George Lucas bloke like messing up his idea. And so Lucas went off and made something called Star Wars instead and made a whole, whole load of money, at which point Dino went, hey, I want some of that money. I've got this material and started the process in getting it to the screen. And uh, I believe, was it Nick Rogue did a treatment on the film? Yeah, no, Nick Rogue was initially connected to uh, to bring the film to the big screen. There have been production drawings that have appeared. There have been, uh, I've even seen some storyboards from Nick Rogue's uh, version of it. In fact, before Nick Rogue, uh, Federico Fellini was set to, to yeah. direct it, but that was never made. Um, but Nick Rogue, Nick Rogue was hired. Of course, Nick Rogue, if you if you know your film stuff, was uh, was responsible for The Man Who Fell to Earth, a very stylistic director. Uh, his treatment of Flash Gordon didn't connect with what De Laurentiis wanted with it. Rogue was a big admirer of, of Alex Raymond, the original creator of, of the strip. He as loved well. the original comic strips, but Dino wanted to step away from the comic book and play on the comic elements rather than the comic book elements. At one point, he considered hiring, and this would have been an amazing film, Sergio Leone to direct it. <laughs> yep. Another another huge fan of um, the Re Alex Raymond comic strips, apparently. Yeah, he, and that's why he turned it down, because he didn't like what Dino's vision was. Yeah, he believed that the the this film should should adhere to the to the script. Mike Hodges, who'd made Get Carter, uh, was brought on, and and to some extent he was a director that uh, would would be easier to control by Dino De Laurentiis and and make the film that he wanted to. Lorenzo Semple was brought on to uh, write the script. As you remember, Lorenzo Semple created the Batman TV series. Uh, yep. He'd also written uh, Never Say Never Again, the uh, Sean Connery Bond film. No, oh, let's not hold that against him. Yeah, well, that's the film to talk about at another date, interestingly enough. <laughs> um, but he wanted um, they wanted to make Flash Gordon humorous. And I think Semple had that camp element to his script writing. He also made, just pointed out that Lorenzo Semple Jr., even though he's known for Batman, made the very fantastic Three Days of the Concord, which is yeah. a stunning thriller. I remember, reading a, I remember reading an interview with Semple where he actually, in hindsight, realised that making Flash Gordon a comedy caper was a terrible mistake and it should have been given the more serious adventure approach instead, which would have possibly helped its reputation at the time when it got released because the film was a flop. Apart from in the UK. Oh, yeah. oh we embraced it over here. Yeah, it <laughs> went down re ridiculously well in the UK, became somewhat of a, of a, a short-lived phenomenon. It does have a very European sensibility to it, more so than, than a US sensibility to it, if you know what I mean. We need to talk about the cast. Brian Blessed. Let, let's let's start with Brian Blessed, Prince Voltan, the winged leader. What I love about the casting of Brian Blessed in this film is how much he embraced it, how much he loved it, 
and how much he doesn't disregard it. He still loves talking about it. If you bumped into him in the street and just said, oh my God, you were in Flash Gordon, he would bellow out, Gordon's alive at you, because he loved the character. And this goes back to his childhood. In one of his many autobiographical books, he talks about as a kid when him and his mates used to play Flash Gordon serials like as a kid, he would always insist that he plays Voltan. So when he was cast, it was a childhood dream coming true. And that's why he's embraced it. And that's why he's never been ashamed of being a part of this film. Uh, you're talking about the cast. Of course, Mike Svonsidau, who we, we lost recently, is, is just, he is Ming the Merciless. He is in every way he embodies Ming the Merciless indeed. He doesn't play it over the top. He plays it in a serious way. He doesn't embrace the comedy aspect of it. He plays the villain menacing. And he manages to move that character away from a sort of the racist stereotype that Ming the Merciless was yeah. back in the in the in the comic strips. Now poor Sam Sam J. Jones. The film that destroyed his career. Yeah. It, he had disagreements with Dino from the start. He didn't like the direction that it was going in. He thought that they should be doing other things. And he was very vocal about it on set. And so when it came to them taking a break and then editing together and then looking for pickups, he was never invited back for pickups and voice overdubs. Yeah, I mean, I'd, I'd heard this story for a long time that uh, that he'd been uh, he'd been redubbed by another actor. I'd always heard that it was uh, one of the Keach brothers, uh, not Stacey Keach, but perhaps James Keach. Um, yeah. But it turns out that it was a, a dramatic voice actor called Peter Marnica whose identity was long considered unknown, even to Jones. Even though, at one point, there was a sequel proposed. But once, uh, and a bit like the George Lazenby scenario, he walked out on it, they didn't come back, uh, I wasn't invited into post-production. And so so any ideas of a sequel, even as as vague as they, they would have been, never materialised. There was a, there's, of course, the end question mark, which is the last shot of the film. His, his career struggled afterwards? Uh, he had bit parts in TV shows like The A-Team or small roles on direct-to-video releases. Um, do you remember the TV series that he was very short-lived, only 10 episodes in the late 80s, I The Highwayman? Mean, yeah, I do. Oh, I loved that. Don't remember much about it, series. but I do oh, remember I, I, it. I do remember him being in it. because I was, have very fond memories of watching that. Because it was, oh my God, Sam J. Jones in a TV series. <laughs> Where is he now? Because <laughs> he always ended to go, Sam J. Jones, other than uh, appearing in, in Ted. Is where is he now? Interesting to note that Max von Sydow, as Ming as well, insisted on being on set in full costume, even when it wasn't doing shots with him in frame. When they were doing the reaction shots, like with two-way conversations, he would insist on being there in full costume. And Sam J. Jones said, like, basically said to him, was like, you don't think you even need to be here. They're just doing pickups on me. They're getting my reactions. They're getting my part of the conversations. And he just said, like, I'm here to feed you your lines, and I fully expect you to do the same for me. That's professionalism. And I love that aspect that, you know, that, that can't have been the most comfortable of costumes to have got into. But he insisted on being there to make sure that everything was done right, and that if there was a chance to do something in a different way, he would know about it, so he'd be able to then insist on getting reshoots of his side of the conversations. Marvellous. Mentioned to Peter Wingard as well, as General Clitus, under really heavy... Um, costume design, the metal mask, the hooded robe, who really, really wanted that sequel to happen. Even though his character allegedly died, it's his hand that reaches for Ming's ring on the, the end question mark. 
and wouldn't we have loved to have seen him come back? I know that um, watching an interview with Peter Wingard from a few years before he died, and he said that he always hoped that he'd get that call saying, we're going to make Flash Gordon too and we want you back. The film also starred Melody Anderson as Dale Arden. She had somewhat of a, a TV career afterwards. You can't forget that the, that the cast also had Topol in as Hans Zarkov. Yeah. Um, we mentioned Timothy Dalton. Ornella Muti as Princess Aura. Boy, we all remember Ornella Muti. Changed yeah. a young man's life for many of us. Gosh, I, rem- I remember a few things about her. Uh, and Richard O'Brien uh, from Rocky Horror <laughs> fame popped up in there as, uh, as Fico. So it had a great cast, a British cast. It had, a, as I said, it had a very British European sensibility. And again, you can't talk about Flash Gordon without mentioning the soundtrack because it was performed by, at that point, one of the biggest bands in the world, Queen. And the song, the song has almost again uh, lasted longer in our memories than the film does. It's it's had it's had a life of its own outside of the movie. The Queen soundtrack, not just that one track, which like the Flash Gordon theme. But every aspect of the theme score is marvellous. Brian May's screaming guitars and the the wedding theme, uh, wedding march theme, is everything is a great listen. It's a great soundtrack and it definitely elevates the film above what it should have been. It didn't find its audience. So as we said, it, it was a big success in the UK. Internationally, it was a disappointment. As a film... Even though we love it, and we we love it for the for the right reasons, it's campy. It's 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 a fun romp. It is it's it's it's, it's got poor special effects. It has um, an all over the place script as far as as humor goes and tone. It doesn't quite come together, but it's one of those films which doesn't quite come together, but it's still enjoyable. It's a fun movie. It's a film that I can go back to and enjoy and enjoy and enjoy, and it's like it's. Like when we talked about Highlander, that we can identify the faults in that film, but you can overlook them because you can embrace what the film was doing and you you get caught up in it. This is one of those films that I just get caught up in it every time that I watch it. And I'm happy to just pop this on at any time. And I'm even happier that, as we reported on the last show, the UK box set edition for the 40th anniversary will be coming out in 10th of August. Who'd have thunk it would have been one of those films that that people celebrate forty years on because it, it was it was much ridiculed in its reception, but it's got a it's got a huge fan following. That people like Edgar Wright, it's their favourite film. Uh, Alex Ross, the uh, client comic book artist, names the film as one of his favourites of all time. Uh, of course, we said it was mentioned in Ted. There's there's a lot of love for this film, and a lot of love for the fact that it it is so unique. It does have. For everything that's wrong with it, it has a voice and it has a style and it has a sense of itself that that makes you think, you know, this is one of those films where where, where everybody just goes, it, it worked for what it was. Is it a classic? It depends how you determine what you think a classic is. The fact that it that it's loved, the fact that it's a film that has its own identity and works works in its own right. Everything that's wrong about it is the reason that everything is right about it. I can't be any more obscure than that. Uh, there's a great documentary on Amazon Prime, Life After Flash. It came out a couple 2018, I think, which has interviews with the cast and people behind the film. It gives a nice insight towards uh, the making of Flash Gordon and where it all came about, and also how it impacted on Sam J. Jones's life afterwards. So if you're a fan of the film, get on Amazon and get that documentary watched. Absolutely recommended. 
Uh, but the 40th anniversary edition, when it comes out, a new 4K restoration. Yeah, that's taken from the original camera negative, isn't it? And actually approved by Hodges himself. Loads of extras on there. A new documentary about Nick Rogue's version of it. An audio commentary with Mike Hodges, audio commentary with Brian, Brian Blessed. Behind the scenes, stills galleries, storyboards, etc., etc. As well as little collectible comic book, little journals, postcards, poster. It's a beautiful box set and I'm pre-ordering it. Excellent. And interestingly enough, it's a film that, uh, well, it's a series. The characters are, has been tried to, to, to be rebooted. There was a, a very dreadful TV series that came out <laughs> about 10 years or so ago. Oh, yeah. There's a, been talk of a, of a new Flash Gordon film in the works for, for the last, over the last 40 years. I'd heard that Matthew Vaughan was connected to it at one point. Uh, Julius Avery, who did Overlord, and now Taika Waititi is, is yeah. now interested in, in doing Flash Gordon. So it'd be interesting to see if Flash Gordon is is remade, is rebooted, that there is some sort of nod and throwback to to this nineteen eighty classic, not great but thoroughly loved Flash Gordon movie. Yeah. So next week we'll take a look at another deep dive, and that's about it for this week. But of course, before we go. We always like to uh, discuss amongst ourselves what we've been watching, what we've been eating, tasting, filming, uh, playing, reading. Andy, what is your neat thing of the week? My neat thing is the TV series Snowpiercer that has landed, the first two episodes have landed on Netflix and it's going to release a new episode every week. I've so far only caught episode one and liked it a lot. Yeah, it's based on the film of the same name by Bong Joon-ho. And also the original French comic story by Jacques, Le- Jacques Loeb, Benjamin Legrand, and Jean-Marc Rochette. For those who aren't aware, it's set seven years after the world began to freeze. And a, an arc train started its constant journey for the 1001 carriages that carried the wealthy of the world. And a band of lower classes confined to the tail end of the carriages. Those in the lower ranks are ready to rise up and take control of the train. The film was a letdown for me because oh, really? I, I thought that I'm surprised. The, there's a lot of great. I, I mean, it was fun, but there was a lot of great ideas in there. But it didn't have enough time to really spend time fleshing out those ideas. Because when you consider a train with all the different classes of society and how this all structures, there's so much to explore within there. But the film only touched upon it because it was too busy trying to just do the revolution from the back to the front and taking control of the train. The series has a chance to explore the setting more. And I'm already completely engrossed within the world setting that it's on. So whilst the revolution is bubbling in the background of the series, the series is using an unsolved murder plot device to give some more depth to the setting, allowing the main character, Andre, played by David Diggs, um, who was a former homicide detective who's part of the tail end of the train, but is the only police officer actually on the train. Because most of the people who paid to get on the train were wealthy, so they didn't have actual jobs. They were just had wealth. So he's the only person who was a, a homicide detective. So he's been put in to try to... Fa- brought up through the levels to try to find out who's done this murder. And this gives him a chance to explore these other sections of the train and feed it back to the tailies for the revolution. But it also gives us a chance to see this complex world setting that it's done in. Jennifer Connolly is Melanie Cavill who's the voice of the train and the public liaison to the passengers who may harbour some other secrets, but I'm not going to go into detail. I'm completely on it. The cast are great. 
And the world setting, as it's growing, is becoming more and more fascinating. This train is an amazing, amazing study of human nature. And this is what I'm looking forward to seeing over the series as it pans out. So Snowpiercer on Netflix. Regardless of what you thought of the film, if you liked it, if you didn't like it, give the series a chance as well because it offers a, a unique, different way of approaching the story. I, I enjoyed the first episode. I will definitely stick around for the series. I like the film a lot. I've never read the comic book, uh, which it was originally based on. So there were some elements that are, have become clearer by just watching the first episode. I like the fact that there's almost a connection art direction-wise between the series and, and the movie, uh, whether that's because it, that comes from the original comic or not i think it, it's it's kept that sort of sense of it uh, i love the setting um i'm looking forward to getting into uh, episode two so i've been in in lockdown with my my partner uh over the last couple of months um and she turned vegan and because it was easier we decided that uh we would uh, i would adapt a, a, a vegan diet at first i wasn't too keen uh i'm a, a carnivore uh I, we do we did have a tendency before that to eat vegetarian at home um, but I've, uh, I've, I've accepted this, uh, this vegan diet and you know what? Absolutely loving it. I, I do like to cook, enjoy cooking at home. And I've found that, that cooking vegan food has become a bit of a challenge. I'm still quite a traditionalist when it comes to uh, almost a meat and two veg on your plate. And I, you know, and I, if we have a Sunday lunch, I really like to have, you know, the Sunday roast and everything that, that's gone with it. But uh, I'm being pleasantly surprised by how much I am enjoying uh, enjoying uh, vegan food. Whether I'll stick with it afterwards, I can't answer that in full. I just don't know. But we've tried things and we've found recipes online. And I quickly want to mention um, my neat thing, which is a, a couple of guys who are known as Bosch, originally from Sheffield, uh, our hometown, who uh, have uh, vegan recipes and a, a vegan line of food which has just been absolutely fantastic. And their videos that are online, their cookery videos, are exceptionally well made, really, really good, uh, and just challenges of what you think uh, being vegan is all about. As I said, I'm not sure whether I'll stick on onto it, but the fact that the other week we made vegan KFC just proved to me that there is another way of eating and looking after yourself and staying staying healthy but if you are interested in 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 going down this route or at least exploring and see what it's like then check out the bosch boys the the, the bosch videos because it's not all about lentils and that, that's all that's all i have to say on the matter if, if you could only eat lentil it would drive me mental <laughs> there you go there's a t-shirt so that's it for this week's uh, podcast thank you for joining us we'll be back in a week or so with another deep dive yet to be decided. Andy will be watching Goodwill Hunting. I'm sure by then there'll be even more news. There'll probably be even a release date for Tenant by the time we uh, we get around to next week's show. <laughs> uh, and that's it from me. As ever, Andy, it's been an absolute pleasure. Aye, same. And no matter how long it takes, no matter how far, I will find you. All right. <laughs> Steady on. <laughs>